So welcome to this British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast. My name is Sean Carmody. I'm a junior doctor in London. Today's podcast comes to you um, from Surrey Sports Park, which is the home of Harlequins Rugby. Uh, and I'm delighted to welcome David Dunn, uh, who is the performance nutritionist for Harlequins Rugby. Thanks very much for having me. Look, thanks for dropping out as well. It makes my life a bit easier. So David is a, a sports nutritionist who's worked with um, several organisations from a variety of different sports, including professional football, uh, professional golf, combat sports uh, and canoeing. Um, and I'm delighted to try and get some insights into the kind of uh, work David has been doing with athletes and just to go through some of the challenges he might face. So David, I'm going to dive right in and we're going to give you a clinical case. Um, sure, yeah. We're going to look at boxing as the sport as an example. Uh, so you've got a, a boxer who approaches you, he's a welterweight, uh, so he, he needs to weigh 66, 6.7 kilos for a fight, but three months before the biggest fight of his life, he's weighing in at 74 kilos. Can you tell me about how you'd approach this athlete and how you'd help him achieve his goals? Yeah, I suppose the first thing, you'd be, you'd be delighted if someone approaches you three months before the fight, you've, you've got 12 weeks then to work with, and that's a nice amount of time to actually start to build in um, a cut or you know, a nice amount of time to make way towards the fight. There's plenty of time to, to build in a, a good approach without relying on any chronic strategies that you'd want to avoid. The very first thing with any combat sport athlete when they come to you really is more about you know, starting to get a better picture of where they are at. So if, if he is coming and he's up in the 70s and we have to drop down to, to 66.7 to make weight, Ideally, we'd get him in the lab, first of all, and actually see of his, you say it was 74 kilos? Yeah. Is that? Of his 74 kilos. You know, let's get him on a DEXA. Let's see how much fat mass he has. Let's see how many kilos of, of lean mass he has, because what we don't want to start to do is start to try to drop fat, but actually, you know, he has too much lean mass and we might need to take off some lean. It's better to do that at, at the start of the camp than towards the back end of the camp. So we'd get him in the lab. We'd get him on the DEXA, um, see what we're playing with. We'd also get him get him in for an RMR if we had the opportunity, otherwise we might have to use something like a prediction equation. So the, the Cunningham equation will, will be one that would jump to mind um, to start to work out how many calories we're going to feed him. So we're, we're probably going to come up with a diet plan where we'll feed him his RMR and let the training start to induce, um, the training help to induce that deficit. So that would be the first thing we'd do. We'd get him in, get those tests done. Um, let's say he came out and his RMR was 2000 calories. We'd work out from his lean mass, we'd probably look to feed his lean mass two grams per kilo um, of protein. And then we'd, we'd look with the rest of the calories and his training load and start to adjust his carbohydrate and his fat intake around his training load. So obviously most of his work will be done at a pretty high intensity. So we'd look to make sure we're fueling his sparring um, sessions in particular with, with a high amount of carbohydrate. However, he might also be including some fasted runs so we'll probably look to taper that off the evening before, maybe get them into the gym and do some more high intensity work, get some glycogen depletion work done in there and start to periodize his carbohydrates around that throughout the week. So that'd be the first thing we'd look at. We look to get that structure in place, probably within the first seven to 14 days, get those tests done, get the, the menu set up, get the food prep sorted. Now that food prep could either be, we might get a, a meal delivery company to provide that for, him or if, if they're quite diligent we might provide them with the recipes to do that themselves and we'll start to adjust that maybe every two weeks as we go into camp the more we can get them back in the lab to see whether how they're getting on the better um, but we'll just keep an eye on the weight and make sure as it's tipping down that we are readjusting um, you know for what their current or more is or you know how many 
grams per kilo of, uh, or sorry, how many grams of protein we feed them based on how many grams or kilos they have a lean mass at that moment in time. So that would be pretty much where, where we'd go with that from the start. As we get closer to the camp, I suppose we've just got to be really strict and start to make sure the athlete's adherence is as high as possible. Um, so continuing and closing the feedback loop is really important. You know, I'd always encourage practitioners, you know, not saying daily, but at least a couple of times a week, you'd want to be in contact with your athlete and touching base and seeing how they're getting on and troubleshooting for any issues. Most, most professional fighters probably have to promote the fight. They've got to go and do different things for their management agency. So you're going to have to be battling with things like their flight schedule, their travel schedule. How can they be training on the road? Or, you know, how are you going to deal if you've got a meal delivery service set up and let's say they're based in, in Manchester, then they've got a flight back to, to Ireland to promote the fight, whatever it might be. Um, so just making sure we've sort of planned around all those issues. So lots of practical stuff pops up along the way. Um, during that camp as well, we might actually look, depending on the fighter, at some supplements to help them. So we might look to supplement with some HMB as well, just because they're, they are in a deficit and they'll, with the volume of training they'll be doing, there will be these high levels of breakdown. Now the two grams of, per kilo of protein should be enough um, to help maintain or protect muscle mass, but the, the HMB might just go in there as an additive uh, insurance. Um, we'd probably also look about 10 weeks before a fight to load a boxer on beta alanine to help with their repeated punching power. Um, some boxers don't like it. It is, it will, the paresthesia or the tingles that it gives you can be, can be quite off-putting for some and certainly catch them by surprise. But, you know, we, if that is the case, we look to split the dosage up and maybe have smaller servings at meal times as opposed to one big bowl of serving during the day. Um, that, that's kind of a general approach of how we'd really go to it until we get to the last week when it's probably the sharp end. And I guess uh, when you're in that kind of deficit, the risk is that you uh, don't necessarily get the kind of adaptations that you want to achieve leading into a big fight. How do you kind of get prevent that happening? Um, do you communicate with the coaches? What kind of things do you do? Yeah, I think it's really important. I think, you know, a multidisciplinary approach is vital in this. You know, we don't want... A boxer that's trying to lose weight going through a, a hypertrophy block with his SNC coach, you know, the poor fella's just going to break. Um, he's going to under recover. He's going to be at an increased risk of not only picking up illness, but also an injury. So we need to make sure we know exactly what the SNC coach is doing. The SNC coach also needs a very structured approach to make sure that they're probably targeting more, uh, more neural adaptations as opposed to the, any increases in cross-sectional mass. So. And we will have identified that at the start. So when we, when we have got the decks at the start, we'll know, look, we actually, we might have enough lean mass or we might need to put on lean mass. We can have that conversation. And that also does help to inform the S&C program going on. I mean, from a nutritional perspective, when they are in a deficit, what we still need to make sure we're doing is avoiding any deficiencies. So, I mean, we'll always prioritize and the kind of rule I have with my athletes is, is seven to ten servings of, of fresh fruit and veg a day. Well, it doesn't have to be always be fresh. There might be some frozen berries that are built in there. And we look at that at key times throughout the day. So like I said, if we're looking to manipulate carbohydrate intake, their evening meals might be based more around green vegetables and what we can do with those or how we can make nice salads and get some nice salad dressings with some spices and Greek yogurt um, to go alongside their meat, their fish. However, around sessions, we might look you know, pre and post session, we might also include some fruits um, to try get those in. 
or at certain times, depending on how they are recovering or how their sleep is, we might also include something like tart cherry um, to help them along the way there. So it is really important. And I think, you know, having working with your, your strength and conditioning coach and your sports scientist, or it depends how many people are in the camp really, um, you know, you might have to set up your own wellness monitoring yourself and, you know, knock up a Google Sheets where you can start to collect how they are recovering, how they are feeling, what's their mood, their stress, their energy levels like, just to help give you a better picture and make informed decisions. Um, there's a big crossover, I suppose, between the evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence and in working with an athlete and appreciating that that athlete definitely doesn't come from a textbook and that he, he, he's not a mean or he's not an average. Um, so the more information we collect along the way, it just helps to better inform the next camp and the next fight. And if they're good enough, like you said, to get a title fight, um, for this camp, then I'm sure there'll, there'll be another big fight that'll be uh, coming up in their career. So we've just got more more to work with then. David, you mentioned the importance of being particularly sharp in the week leading into the fight. Well, let's take a scenario where the same fighter um, comes to you. He's followed your programme. He's done quite well, but he's still not quite there. Uh, he, he's mentioned uh, some of the other boxers in his gym have tried things like wearing you know, black bin bags in a sauna uh, and they've gotten away with it and they've, uh, you know, before the fight they've maybe tried intravenous rehydration. How do you kind of avoid those uh, negative habits um, and perhaps unethical practices? Yeah, I think the, the issue there is, and it is in, in a lot of combat sports, probably more prevalent in, in sports like MMA where there's bigger gaps between weight classes, is those those chronic dehydration strategies are, you know, they're a result of a culture that's been there for a number of years where there's probably a perception that if an athlete's heavier and can drop weight and can come in the ring heavier, that he's going to be at an advantage to win that fight. And that's not necessarily the case. Being heavier doesn't mean you're a better, a better boxer. The, the Mayweather-McGregor fight's a great example of that. There's a huge weight difference and, and Mayweather was just a better boxer. Um, I think the thing leading into the fight is you know, first of all, people will come to you 12 weeks before knowing that the week it's leading into the fight itself is going to be tough. Um, there's, there's still going to be a decent percentage of body weight dropped in that week leading into the fight. And, and that, that's normal if it's handled well. I think the biggest thing is you've got to build up trust and you've got to build up a relationship with the athlete throughout the course of the camp. Um, you've also got to really educate them as to what is going to happen during that week. And you might even trial some of those strategies during the camp so that they're comfortable with what numbers will come off, you know, from what protocols. So, you know, there is no need to do any of these these chronic strategies. I think Reed Wheel is actually from Australia. He's just finished his PhD looking at acute weight loss in combat sports. He's made a great contribution to the field with his research. Um, and there's a nice template in there for anyone who is looking to map out that last week of different strategies that can be done. So. I suppose the first thing you look at sort of leading into the last week is an easy win is to deplete their glycogen stores. So we know that you know muscle glycogen or, or glycogen stored in the liver is going to hold approximately 2.7 grams of water for every gram of glycogen that is stored. So if we can put them on a low carbohydrate diet for that week to just start to deplete their liver and their muscle glycogen, you know, we will get we'll get a couple of hundred grams, sometimes a couple of kilos that'll come from that itself. So that might be a simple strategy. If we might base the meal plans that week, we might just look at less than 50 grams of carbohydrate for the day, for, the, for those seven days. Then as we get closer to the fight, we might play around with some, you know, their, the sodium in their meals. We might try drop their overall daily intake of sodium to 
below 500 milligrams. And then as we get, get even closer to the fight, we might look at strategies to manipulate the, the body's water content. Now, most a lot of athletes will chronically dehydrate. Some athletes go the other way and they'll, they'll do something called water loading where they're deliberately trying to increase their, their water intake to kind of get their body into a state where it's gonna be excreting more, more frequently, and then they'll, they'll acutely um, have a lower intake leading into the fight. So I know the guys up at Liverpool, John Moores, recently did a study on an MMA fighter where he water loaded, I think it was on 135 mils of fluid per kilo in the couple of days leading into the fight and then drop right down, or sorry, about four or five days leading into the fight, and then the day before, drop right down to, I think it was 15 mils per kilo, and you know, the biomarkers they got on that were quite scary, um, and it does show that you know, some of these guys are probably, probably coming a bit closer to death than they think. Um, Reed's research, he's, he's, he appears to have a safer protocol looking at 100 mils per kilo per day, um, starting from four days before the weigh-in, you carry that on for three days, and then, the day before the weigh-in, dropping fluid intake to 15 mils per kilo. Um, and again, it will just, that upregulation of your body urinating um, should carry on into that day. And that's where people might find they might lose a kilo, they might lose a bit less. Now, again, they're, they're tough strategies to play around with. They can be quite, they can be very dangerous when they're done wrong. So it's always best to align yourself with a good lab. And if you are doing it, make sure you're trialing these things, you're collecting biomarkers and information along the way. So you actually know where your athlete is responding. Um, other people might dehydrate uh, throughout the course of the week, and I really do think that should be avoided. You know, there's no point in someone trying to do a sweat session on a you know on a Wednesday before a Saturday weigh-in. They're probably going to put that fluid back in again before they get back in there. So, and the final thing they might toy around with is just the residue of their food as well. So, some insoluble fiber in your gut can can hold a little bit of water and a little bit of weight as well. So, people might you know even with their lower carbohydrate intakes. Um, they might drop down the residue maybe for 48 to 96 hours before before the weigh-in. Again, it just depends how they respond individually. And you kind of see that strategy commonly employed by cyclists and in the Tour de France where they're looking to, to manage their body weight and their power-to-weight ratio on those big, lumpy stages. So it's, if anything, I'd say the more of a chef's hat the, nutrition, the nutritionist can have to try find ways to fit those strategies and still make the food tasty and enjoyable because the last week before a camp, that weigh-in is like the fight itself. Half the time, the boys don't, they might not even think about the fight until that's done. Um, whereas if you can still enjoy your food and employ some safe practices along the way, avoid any chronic strategies that's gonna place yourself at, um, your health in, you know, in harm's way, then, then that's great. And some of the research you've mentioned will definitely link to the listeners and below this podcast. Dave, I'm conscious you've worked in lots of different sports and I'm very eager to, to pick your brain about those. Uh, considering that we're at the home of Harlequins Rugby at the moment, I'd like to ask about um, rugby. Uh, let's change tack a little bit. A rugby player comes back in pre-season and he's looking to gain muscle mass. He's looking to put on weight ahead of the season. How do you go about that and how, how does your approach differ versus the, the combat athlete? Yeah, I suppose that, that's a problem every combat athlete would love to have, um, having to, to pack on a few pounds. but. I mean, it's a completely different sport. Uh, the guys are a completely different makeup, and you know, the it's it's actually quite a nice problem to have. Building muscle is probably one of the easier things to do as a sports nutritionist. You know, will I've been unfortunate enough to this is my fifth season at the rugby club, and there's been many highs and lows, but I've got to know the players really well and, and sort of build up good rapports on that front. So most of the guys when they come in in the preseason period, we kind of get 
sort of two different body types come in. People that have really enjoyed their off season, um, and they might have lost a, a lot of muscle mass as well as put on some fat mass. And I suppose the off season is the perfect storm for that to happen of later nights and maybe you know an increase increase in social activities and social related activities. Um, and other people that will have actually trained really hard and maybe even come back in better nick. But during the preseason period, or if someone does come back and they are looking to pack on some lean mass. You know, it's the exact opposite of what we've tried to do with a boxer in that we'll put them in a, a positive energy balance as opposed to a negative energy balance. It's if they're looking to gain weight as well with that with that gain in lean mass. Um we'll set their protein intake again. We'll look at their we'll look at their how much lean mass they have and then we'll probably set them a figure of between two and two point five grams per kilo um of protein for as a daily basis and we'll work with the chefs at the club, we'll work with our structure at the club. So what food do they get after each session? What's their portion size? We're very fortunate to have a phenomenal chef, Omar Mezian, at the club. So he's brilliant with making sure the guys are, you know, they're getting enough of what they need. Um, and then we educate the guys on what they have away from the club. So we might set up a structure where we just focus with the guys. We say, look, here are some options for your breakfast and your dinner. Um, we'll agree on stuff that they like, they feel they can prepare, or they feel that they can prepare in a short period of time, given their time constraints uh, outside of the club. Then we'll work with the chef to make sure our menu matches what, what our players' requirements are and that there's enough, you know, there's enough servings of 40, 45 grams of protein, depending on the meal. Um, and that post-session, if they are looking to supplement, that we have that ready there. So it should be a nice seamless transition when they come back and they should, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. We feed them two to three times a day here. Um, they might get a shake and a snack here as well. So they just need to look after their breakfast and their dinner at home. And that's where sort of our education comes into play. And then education around rest days and off days of how to maintain those habits, probably when they're a bit more pushed for time. Um, contrary to popular belief, despite the rest day seeming like it would have more time, that's generally when most of the players are out or they're meeting friends or family and probably more challenging. So, I mean, that would be the number one thing we'd look at, that positive energy balance and making sure their protein intake is is where it needs to be. It wouldn't be an excessive positive energy balance. It might be something like 500 calories a day uh, that we could look to sneak in. And after chatting to the players, you'll probably find within three or four minutes of conversation that probably they're leaving out a pre-bed snack or maybe they've just got their portion size wrong somewhere. It might just be a small tweak. You know, I, I never like to do a big massive overhaul. It should only be one or two small habits or behaviors we, we focus on and can really reinstill before we move on and, and add down another layer. That's very helpful. Thanks, Dave. Uh, let's change tack again and go to some of the work you've done in golf. Um, you know, golfers as athletes have very unique demands. They have to travel a lot. Um, you know, they're playing at all different times of the day uh, in different climates. What are the specific challenges you faced when working with golfers? Yeah, I suppose I'm in a really fortunate position that my brother's actually on the European tour, so I've grown up with with him keeping me awake, with putting mats in the corridor for, for many years and, and seeing him progress, which has been great. But he's also given me a really good insight to life on tour. I suppose the biggest thing for these, for these guys is that the European tour's travel schedule is very demanding. Um, the amount of flights they have to do, the amount of different time zones they have, they have to jump through, anything that can be done to help settle players in early in the week and actually adjust their body clocks as soon as they can and any strategies that can look to help prevent illness or picking up upper respiratory tract infections on travel days or you know you know big long back-to-back -back days of competition and training you know you look at a thursday and a 
a Friday, people either get the early late shift or the late early shift. And the early shift is, I mean, you're going to be up at 4, 4.30 a.m. some of those days to make sure you're getting in your warm-up and your breakfast and getting to the course and doing everything you need to do. So I'd certainly look at, with the amount of travel they do, making sure, first of all, from a dietary perspective, that they're, they're well-educated enough to make good choices because they're going to be eating out a lot. Um, they'll be eating at the course. They need to know what foods to pick, you know, when they're out, maybe some extra sides that they might need to get or foods to avoid to make sure from a micronutrient perspective, they're still getting an array of the vitamins and minerals they should be getting, as well as from a protein perspective, how much they need and what that looks like on a daily basis. Then from a supplementation side of things, we might look at including um, some stuff around their gut health, um, like probiotics, depending on where they're going to, we, we might add in some extra layers on top of that. Um, and we might also look at supporting supporting their sleep strategy or just adding in some additional polyphenols into their diet from something like tart cherry to maybe help with their sleep as well as aid their recovery and, and immune function. Very good. Dave, we've done a whistle-stop tour of the nutritional demands of three very different sports in boxing, rugby and golf. Just finally, just to close the, this podcast, what universal truths do you think exist between all of those sports that you can... Uh, that the listeners at home can apply to their athletes, even if it's just a, a recreational athlete? Yeah, I, I don't want to give a cliche one and say a food first approach, but it's, um, I mean, that is important. I think if everyone could just, if everyone does the basics, the more we actually start, start to cook our own food ourselves, I think, you know, it's a really good life skill to have to be able to actually understand what you're cooking and having a bit of appreciation for food. Once a week, really get in the kitchen and start to prioritize your own, your own cooking and start to understand food a little bit more and appreciate um, appreciate what actually is in food and how we can make it tasty more than anything. I, I, I don't think food should be a burden or a stress or eating well should become stressful and something that people are like, oh, I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm on a diet now and I'm doing this. You know, just start to build in those principles on a weekly basis and, and everything should work out fine. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. Uh, that's David Dunn. Uh, he's nutritionist for Harlequins Rugby among many other organisations. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us today. No worries, thanks for having me.